Welcome to Sophos Security Chat Chat number 207 for the 17th of July, 2015. I'm your host, John Shire, and I'm joined today by Paul Ducklin. Good afternoon, Paul. Hello, John. You said the 17th of July, didn't you, which makes it T plus three days and counting. It sure does. So yes, uh, Windows 2003 support, mainstream support, ended on July 13th. 2010, or sorry, 13th of July 2010, to be more accurate with the rest of the world. Uh, and extended support ended this uh, Tuesday, the 14th of July 2015. So, yes, a mere five years and one day after mainstream support ended. It really is all over, folks. The train stops here. So, uh, unless you are the US Navy, I'm guessing you've probably done something about that. And if you have not, it's probably high time that uh, you thought about migrating your Windows 2003 servers to something a little bit more modern. So, let's uh, officially kick off the podcast with um, a story that uh, you covered uh, last week. That being the OpenSSL Certificate Verification Bug, or CVE. 2015-1793. Yes, the bug without a fancy name for once. So this uh, OpenSSL bug, uh, luckily, I, th- I think it was one of those things that, uh, you know, the, the OpenSSL group, they put out a bulletin that was somewhat vague and uh, maybe ominous sounding uh, and and basically said, you know, in, in a few days, we're going to release um, a security update for a defect that's classified as high severity, we were all left to sort of speculate as to, well, how high is this severity? Now, they did say that, you know, right off the top, it was not going to affect the 1.0.0 or the 0.9.8 releases. But still, there's quite a few releases out there that uh, were potentially impacted. So maybe you can take us through the certificate verification piece. And then uh, after that, maybe we can talk about some of the implications of uh, certificate verification and how they can be abused. It certainly sounded ominous. Uh, I described it as having put people who are interested in web security in baited breath mode because high severity could cover everything from certificate checking problems to remote code execution. It turned out to be the former it was only in the very latest two sub-sub versions of the latest two versions of OpenSSL in the end. And it meant that in theory, a crook could take you to a fake site, put up a fake certificate, and the warning you'd expect to see, that warning could be suppressed. So it is a serious problem, but it wasn't quite as though somebody could just jump into your server, take over and do whatever they wanted. So it is an important bug to fix. I just wish perhaps that OpenSSL had been a little more forthcoming a little earlier on. I don't think it would have had a de- detrimental impact to the actual disclosure itself. And so uh, just a little bit more information would have been handy, if, if only to maybe save a few people uh, some sleepless nights. Perhaps, John, what they were thinking is that if they said this is about certificate verification, it might have been that where the bug was and how to exploit it would have jumped out. Yeah, you make a good point. And, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it seems like we're making this a common refrain on the podcast. But uh, if you do have uh, OpenSSL, whether it's through some third-party applications or something that you code yourself, then, uh, you know, please update now. While we're on the story of vulnerabilities that were quickly patched, there was uh, another revelation from the hacking team breach. 
uh, this week that involved Internet Explorer. And uh, this one was, was rather serious. It involved a remote code execution, which, as we've uh, said many times in the past, is, is probably the worst kind of vulnerability. Give us a bit of a taste of what this was all about and uh, how Microsoft responded. Interestingly, it looks as though it was a fault in memory management by the JavaScript just-in-time compiler, or JIT compiler. Now, a jitter takes interpreted source code like you get from JavaScript and to speed things up goes, hey, this loop's being used a lot. I'll compile it into native code, machine code, like you get in, say, a DLL or an EXE file, and I'll stick it into a special memory buffer, data buffer, and then I'll run it, and it will run at full speed. And you can kind of see what's coming here. The problem with the output buffer from a JIT compiler is it's data, but also code. So that buffer can't use data execution prevention. So it's very important that those buffers be super carefully managed. Um, but it turned out there was a, apparently a use after free bug, which obviously when that's executable code in there could be very dangerous. Yeah, I couldn't help to think of, you know, when, when this was reported on the 9th of July, Microsoft responded within only a couple of days, so it it kind of gave me a little bit of warmth to think that maybe maybe Microsoft is uh, speeding up its its response to patching with this whole new rolling release model coming down the line. The good news is that with a rolling release model, an update like this where you're fixing this just in time compiler bug, you can just push out that one fix. It doesn't come suddenly get stuffed in amongst a whole load of other fixes that make up the MS15-065, which is a giant long list of CVs, a long list of vulnerabilities. And you can argue that the less you change each time, the less likely it is that things will go wrong. It's not completely scientific, but it does seem that you're less likely to get hit by two or three updates conflicting with one another out of this giant bunch, and then you're desperately trying to work out where the problem happened. Yeah, and somebody else weighed into the whole Flash debate this week, and that was (laughs) Facebook's new chief security officer, Alex Stamos, uh, who basically said, death to Flash. Now, he didn't exactly say that. He tweeted out that uh, it is time for Adobe to announce the end of life date for Flash and to ask the browsers to set kill bits on the same day. As you say, although he didn't actually use the words death to Flash, end of life sounds like a synonym for death to me. And set kill bits is effectively kill off, prevent it working. So fighting words, weren't they? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting also that it's coming uh, from Facebook. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have their opinions about Facebook and security and privacy and the way that they've handled themselves in the past. And so for them to come out swinging saying, hey, you need to kill this thing because it's harming users is seen by some as a bit of a uh, of a cheeky move. I think the other part, the other thing which would have made it a little more palatable, at least to me, would be if Facebook had been willing to back up this by saying, and by the way, we're discontinuing the use of Flash. So whether you have it installed or not, you do not need it for Facebook. And even if you have it, we will not try to use it. Because although, at least in my experience, Firefox on OS 10, Facebook works just fine without Flash. If you have it, they will use it. One wonders how quickly Facebook would respond if Adobe did say, OK, we'll call you a bluff. We'll pull a pin on Flash this day, and in one month's time, it's game over. You know, would Facebook be there? But if you have an opinion, by the way, on 
how long should they give browsers before they kill it off, there's a poll on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Come and vote. Yes, I was quite heartened when I looked at the preliminary results of that poll. Um, it, it really does speak to the security-mindedness, and albeit a self-selected sample of, uh, of respondents, but the security-mindedness of people out there with respect to Flash. Actually, somebody else who took to Twitter this week to report some good news was that of uh, Jordan Weens, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who was the vulnerability researcher from Florida that was the first recipient of United Airlines' highest level reward in its bug bounty program. Uh, he received 1 million air miles uh, for discovering a remote code execution in one of its websites. That's a long way, John. It certainly is. Because I think it's about 40,000 kilometers around the equator, isn't it? Man, you could go around the Earth a lot. Or, I, I, I went and had a look, you can get 70 $100 L.L. Bean gift cards. <laughs> so he's not going to struggle for Christmas presents for a while. And won't be fashionably dressed either. Well, that was unnecessary. Okay, he could buy seven iPads then. That, that's probably more apt for this crowd. Yeah, so if you want to fly around the Earth a couple times without stopping, or if you want to get a few Apple products or some L.L. Bean gear, then uh, I guess that will do. But overall, the concept of bug bounty pro programs is something that we do stand behind. Uh, after all, when something like this exists, you know, the, the company that's offering the program usually gets some benefit out of it in terms of the, the, the security research that's being done on their products, and we all benefit as the public. Yes, my understanding was that he found um, some kind of remote code execution bug in a United Airlines web backend, something like that. So very definitely worth a responsible disclosure, something that can be fixed even if he explains how it works now, it's not going to be any use to anybody. I, <laughs> I was amused to see that his payout arrived as two separate awards of air miles. One for 999,999, which you imagine is some kind of six-digit limit, plus one air mile to top it up to around a million. I, I sort of chuckled myself wondering if they had to paid out the one million all in one shot whether it would have buffer overflowed their own systems. So good on them for, for coming out with that program. Some people have said, oh, well, it's a way of United Airlines distracting attention from all this kerfuffle that was going on earlier in the year about people hacking into airplanes when they're in flight. They've expressly excluded in-flight, in-aircraft hacking and have obviously just decided, you know, we, we, run, we run a massive online commerce operation, as well as a whole bunch of aeroplanes. Let's join the Bug Bounty Club. So uh, good on them. Absolutely. In a final piece of news, uh, we had a story this week that talked about a, uh, a court case that was recently resolved. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're doing the Chester's job of ending with a bust and some good news about a crook brought to justice, aren't you? This will be the spam house fellow, right? Well, we'll see, because this is one of those cases where, you know, law enforcement did apprehend somebody and uh, the, the judicial arm of the law uh, prosecuted and sentenced this particular individual. But what's interesting is there, there's, again, you know, in terms of polarizing discussions, this is another one where people kind of fall on both sides of, of the issue here. 
This particular gentleman was caught just over two years ago uh, for basically DDoSing uh, Spam House, which is a, um, a project that basically aims to track spam senders, and their job is to put those senders on a block list so that people can consume them and maybe bolster their spam detection. And very definitely, in Spam House's own words, not just to track the senders of spam on the internet, but to help law enforcement identify and pursue those spammers worldwide. Right. But not everyone liked that, and that's why this DDoS happened. And this chap joined in, and he got caught, and uh, now he's facing the music. So he was caught when he was 16 years old, so he would have been a minor in most jurisdictions. And because, you know, the wheels of justice do turn a little bit slowly sometimes, um, and, and because he wasn't able to be identified at the time, now having turned 18, he has recently been sentenced so we do know who this gentleman is, Seth Nolan McDonough. He was sentenced to 240 hours of community service. And I think where a lot of the polarization comes from is, you know, we if we contrast this with the one of the stories we covered recently, that of Alex Yusel, who got 57 months in federal prison for, you know, engaging in computer-related crimes, it's one of those things where people are feeling maybe he didn't get what he deserved. And there's the other camp that feels that, well, you know, because he committed these crimes while he was a minor, that that maybe we ought to go a little bit lighter on him because of, you know, indiscretions of youth. Yes, an interesting case. My understanding is that when he was arrested, of course, when he was 16, uh, he had uh, 72 large ones in the bank. In pounds, that's about just over a hundred thousand U.S. dollars, if you don't mind. Uh, and also, it seems that he had a, a thousand stolen credit card numbers lying around on his computer. My understanding is that he he pretty much offered DDoS for hire. You give him some money, and he'll go and take someone's website out. So it looks as though he was on the road to being a very naughty boy indeed. I guess he was sixteen. He pleaded guilty, so I guess they've given him an opportunity. Uh, as long as he takes it that way and doesn't treat it as, hey, cool, I stuck one to the man, then maybe we can say justice was done. Yes, I agree with you. I think hopefully this is one of those cases where the punishment does fit the crime. With that, I will conclude this week's Security Chetless Chat number 207. You can find our podcasts on iTunes via the TuneIn app or via RSS or on soundcloud.com slash Security. And until next time, stay secure.